Welcome everyone to this episode with Shreya Stosi on the CPO Mastery Podcast. This episode will be on successful products, teams, and careers. So Shreya, getting into the first set of questions on successful products. Despite the abundance of content out there, why do so many well-funded companies still continue to launch failed products? Yeah, I love uh, that you started with this question because we could spend a whole day on this question. There's so much depth to it. Um, something I have spent a large portion of my time over the past decade or so really thinking about this specific question. And there's so many layers to it. Uh, so perhaps we can explore some of these layers. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to share some of my thoughts on this topic. Um, and so I'd perhaps start with the observation that uh, in most cases, a team that is working on products uh, is basically fixated on building the product. Right? That's what we spend most of our time doing when we are working on products. I did the same when I was working on products, especially early on in my career. Uh, but I haven't yet met a team that is well-funded, that is perhaps part of a larger organization, um, or even a startup that is funded, that was never able to build the product. Right? And I'm not talking about now you know, cutting-edge scientific products. Right? I'm talking about software products whether they're delivered uh, you know, over the internet or somehow, or, or uh, you know, they are uh, embedded in devices of uh, all sorts. I have never met once, uh, never once met a team that was never able to ship the product, right? Mm -hmm. And yet most of the energy that is spent is around shipping the product, right? So what does that say? Does that say that shipping the product is not important? No, absolutely it's important. But what I started realizing more and more that uh, shipping the product is actually a small portion of what it takes to be successful, clearly, because there are hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of products shipped, yet very few of them are successful, right? Um, so, and this goes to, you know, the first point I want to make is a lot of what is out there in terms of content is actually just highly I want to stop short of saying misguided, but it's highly confusing. Because if you go on Twitter and say, all that matters is shipping, you know, you'll get a thousand likes, easy. But clearly, we, we see that all that matters is not just shipping the product. There's a lot more to it than shipping the product. Um, so when we talk about, oh, there's so much product content out there, there's so much knowledge out there, there's so many use cases out there, the first observation I'll make is as individuals and as teams, we are actually learning the wrong things in many cases. And we are certainly applying the wrong things in many cases. Right? So, so we have to recognize that. Now, there's a lot of useful content out there. There's a lot of useful material out there. But the part that is missing is that we don't think deeply enough about how this applies in our situation. Right? We are looking for solutions. Like how do you make a product successful? Here's a five bullet list from Shreyas Doshi. Okay, this is it. Right? And by the way, I'll never publish such a list. 
of like five bullets because there is no five bullets, right? But yet we are often seduced by success stories, right? To the extent that the questions that people ask, oftentimes people ask me questions of, well, I have this problem, this go-to-market problem, et cetera, et cetera. How did you solve it at Stripe? Or how did you solve it at Google? How did you solve it at Twitter or whatever the question is? And I have to remind people that, first of all, the premise of this question itself is wrong. Because it does not matter how we solved it at Stripe. Right? It does not matter. Now, some of this is just American culture, right? Like the way questions get asked is people don't ask the question, what should I do? They ask, what would you do? Which is, again, the wrong question to ask. Uh, and oftentimes, it's also you know, this format, which is, how did you solve it? How did your company solve it, et cetera? So it has the right intention, but the question is wrong. So now, when you ask the wrong question, most people will respond to the question that was asked. They will not reframe the question. Right? So, so when you ask somebody, what made you successful at Snapchat? What made this successful at Meta? What made this successful at whatever other company? You are going to get them to respond to your question. And then you are going to try to take some learnings from that and say, OK, you know, I heard this famous person, this amazing person, highly successful person, very wealthy person say ABC. And so I got to try ABC. So now here's the other problem. First of all, we're taking the wrong information, or at least we're not taking the exact right information we need to take. But now the next day, we go to our teams. And we say, oh, you know, I heard this famous person say this. And then you lay it out very excitedly. Like they said, A, B, C, D, E. right? And we should try this. And guess what happens? Your teams get excited. Yeah, we should try this. And then you see that, and you say, wow. OK, I cannot get my team excited most of the time. But when I use some famous company success, when I use some famous person's words, all of a sudden, there is tremendous buy-in. So what am I going to do? I'm going to start using that as a tactic. right? So I, got, I asked the wrong question. So just stay with me here. right? I asked the wrong question, first of all. Like, what made you successful at Stripe or whatever? The person gave me some answer, which was a sincere answer. But there's a bunch of garbage in there. You can't separate the real signal from the garbage. You took what was mostly garbage. You shared it with your team. And you said, here's some garbage. But you framed it as, here's some gold. right? Uh, and the team said, OK, we're going to implement this garbage. What is going to happen? Right? This happens over and over and over again. Right? So, so that's one angle, which goes back to, yes, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of knowledge. Right? There's no dearth of books, biographies of successful business people. Why isn't every business successful? Right? Um, the, there's another aspect, which is I would contend, and this took me many, many years to understand, that in most companies, and this is particularly true in very large companies, the goal isn't even success. The goal, the real goal, the objective function, is not to maximize success. 
the real goal is to create a certain perception of progress, a certain perception of competence, a certain perception of you having everything under control. And that sort of spreads through each level of the organization. Right? So that is the real goal. Now, here's the thing. These people are not malicious. You know, I worked at larger companies. I've fallen prey to this as well. And I've seen many other people fall prey to this as well. So it's not, it's not a malicious approach, but people confuse creating this perception with success. Right? So the, the form it takes is the following. So I'll, I'll share a concrete example. Look, in many well-funded larger companies, if we are being honest, when somebody goes to a product review, so this is a product review with a senior executive, for instance, what you should really be discussing is insight. What is the insight you have about the market, about the customers, competition, regulation, whatever it is. What, is the, what are the insights you have and how are you going to translate those insights into a compelling, creative product that is highly differentiated? And that will win. Right? That is what is supposed to happen in a product review. That is not what happens in 9 out of 10 product reviews. Okay? In 9 out of 10 product reviews, the objective function is to show we have it under control. We have done all the right things. We've done this research. We've looked at these metrics. We've run this fancy report whose maths nobody can understand. So everybody nods yes because nobody can understand it. It's like the emperor has no clothes. But we'll throw it at you so you think we are very smart and sophisticated. And here's a plan, and it's a buttoned-up plan, and we are certain it's going to succeed. And by the way, we need three more engineers to make this happen, and we need some cross-functional alignment to make this happen. And yeah, sales is not very well aligned, so can you fix that for us? That's the conversation in most of these product reviews, right? And the insight is not there. People are playing it safe, right? Like, and why are people playing it safe? Say you are an enterprising creative PM who really has this desire to win, right? Well, as a PM, you probably report to a GPM, group PM, or a director, who then in turn reports to the VP, some VP, who then reports to some SVP, who then reports to the CEO, right? For a highly creative product to actually manifest out of the series of product reviews and meetings that happen, you have to rely on each layer of your management also being highly creative, highly entrepreneurial, with a strong desire to win, with a desire for impact first, not optics, not having to worry about when's my next promotion going to happen, and what team size do I need uh, in order for this promotion to happen? And how does this product review fit into whatever conversation is going to happen in my calibration meeting? You see, people at different levels of the organization are thinking about all this junk. 
right, when they are trying to make a decision of what is going to get presented, what kind of product proposal are we going to make? And when people are thinking of all of this, what happens is you're highly creative, highly differentiated, very ambitious idea gets watered down, right, to something safe, something that can be justified, something for which you can ask a data scientist to run some numbers so you can show that it's going to work beforehand, right? So this process, again, this is, this is just an example of what I was saying earlier, which is throughout this process, the idea of actually launching a highly resonant, creative, differentiated product that has the best chance to win actually takes a backseat. Right? It's more about, well, what is this executive going to say and what is that executive going to say and uh, what are their biases and how might this impact their work and their strategy and therefore, you know, what is the safest thing we can do here that gets us approval, that gets us headcount, that lets us live another day or another next six months, right? Uh, or whatever it is, till the next product review, till the next performance evaluation, calibration, all of that, right? Now, I have seen this happen in some really world-class organizations. So we're not talking about incompetent companies here. We're talking about highly competent companies. But as these competent companies scale, this is just rampant. And this is why you have extremely well-funded companies, companies with tens of billions of dollars of cash flow, who have very well-funded teams, who have all sorts of resources, and who have all sorts of advantages, strategic powers, et cetera, et cetera, still launch highly mediocre products, and still launch non-resonant products, and do so over years and decades sometimes, right? So those are just a couple of angles to your question. There's a lot more depth to it as well. So uh, I'm curious to your reaction, and also if there are any kind of other angles we need to explore. <clears throat> I'm curious if you are um, good-intentioned and impact-focused, uh, and you really want to make something successful, are there any, um, how do you get to good insight? Are there any things that you can do to be successful if your intentions are correct? If you're optic focused, fine, I, I can see that aspect. But if you're impact focused, um, I heard things like um, insight, creativity, and those things. If you are going down that path, how do you do that best? How do you do that best? Is there any non like ground truths that are company agnostic that can get you there or increase your chances? Yes, uh, they can. There are ways in which you can increase your chances of building more successful products. The first thing you will need to do to enable that is you will need to understand the value of understanding human nature. 
right? There is a lot of emphasis in product management right now over the last 10 years or so on um, analytics and you know metrics and north star metrics and so on and so forth right and i think all of that is actually good you know when we did product management 15 years ago we were just we did not have all of these tools and you know getting analytics was very hard and it was tough and so we had to make a lot of decisions without really having a whole lot of data now we had qualitative user research which we did diligently but there just wasn't enough data to make the right decisions right the the chief thing i'll call out is we need to understand that our approach needs to be custom and modified based on the stage of the product that we are working on, that we are trying to make successful. So, and for this, I really like, uh, you know, Kent Beck's 3x framework. I talk about this as much as I can, yeah. because it is such a fundamental framework for all product managers. And it's just unfortunate that still people don't understand, uh, you know, the value of this simple framework. So I'm going to use, you know, our conversation to kind of further that understanding, which is first thing you need to understand is there are basically, Ken Beck um, shared this 3x model, which is there are effectively three stages, uh, three possible stages of a product, uh, explore, expand, and extract, right? And the names are kind of self-explanatory. Uh, but explore is essentially your early stage uh, some people call it 0 to 1 or 0 to 10, whatever the case might be. Uh, expand is, you know, oftentimes viewed as, okay, you've hit product market fit, now you are in scale stage, and uh, you are in hyper growth mode, et cetera, et cetera. And then extract is you are uh, no longer growing 100%, 60%, 50% year over year, but your product is still now uh, a juggernaut. And um, perhaps you're growing 10% year over year, 5% year over year, but that's on a massive denominator, right? So like, hey, if, you know, Google search, if it grows, you know, on a hundred plus billion dollar denominator, if it grows, you know, 5% year over year, that's fantastic, right? Uh, just as one example. And the same for other mature products, like say, you know, the core Facebook products and, and whatnot. So that's the extract. So the observation is that once you understand explore, expand, extract, a lot of the decisions that seem non-obvious actually become much clearer for you. Okay, so let's take an example. Uh, you know, my favorite example here is this idea of OKRs. Okay. Um, I think, you know, done right, OKRs are very useful. Okay. There are people out there who, and I'm sure you all have worked with such people, uh, there are people out there who think about OKRs and they take great pride in setting the right OKRs. Like being good at OKRs is a part of their identity. Yeah. So, 
when you work with such an individual and you're working on a product and you're setting OKRs, they will go to great lengths to remind you that, look, OKR takes the format of O colon KR colon. Okay, that's the first thing. And they'll talk in great detail about what the O needs to be. And then say your KR is a ship version one of this product. They will say, no, 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 no. You're doing OKRs wrong. Let me teach you how to do OKRs. Uh, what is the metric that you are moving from value X to value Y? That's what your KR needs to be. Okay? So what is the metric that you're moving from value X to value Y? Now, again, you're working on an early stage product. So you say, let's say this colleague, this OKR fanatic is Bob. Okay? So you say, Bob, I mean, I'm just like just about, we, we're just about starting to write code for this thing, right? Like we've done some customer research. We have some idea of what we want. Um, you know, this, this KR is three months out. I don't have a metric, Bob. And what am I going to show? Like what, what metric am I moving from what value to what value, right? And, and so Bob will dutifully remind you that, well, there has to be some metric that you are optimizing for. And without, if you don't measure it, and if you don't set target against it, success is impossible, right? So through, you know, let's assume five minutes of dialogue has happened, what you will end up with is a KR that looks like the following. Um, talk to 10 customers of which five have signed a letter of intent to implement the product three months from now. KR1. KR2. Of those five customers, two have gone live with three API calls a day, something, something, right? And so you'll create these KRs, right? Uh, that are move metric, whatever the metric is from value X to value Y. Let's bring it back to 3X, the 3X framework, right? What Bob says is not wrong. But the mistake Bob is making is which stage of product does that principle apply to? So that principle absolutely applies to the extract stage. If you're working on the Facebook newsfeed, I largely want to see KRs that go from, you know, move metric A from value X to value Y. Most of the KRs, that's what I want to see. Yeah. If you're working on Uber's core product, that's what I want to see. Yeah. Those are all extract stage products. Right. Even in expand stage, I want you to identify two or three or four core metrics. And I want you to have KRs associated with those, whether it's revenue or whether it's growth rate or market share or whatever it might be. Right? In expand stage. So that's your hyper growth stage. What Bob does not understand is that by setting these goals in explore stage and then incentivizing you to hit those goals, 
you are all but guaranteeing that your 0 to 1 product will not succeed. Because what is the point? So now I'm going to get to the question, um, the core question, right? Like, what can you do? What is the point of the explorer stage? The point of the explorer stage is to get insight. Insight into what customers need. Insight into what is the solution that is most likely to work and insight into overall how is the market going to receive it? How many customers are we going to have? Are they going to pay for it? What are they going to pay for it? Right? A lot of this is uncertain. These are all ambiguities in Explorer stage. The chief goal of Explorer stage is to resolve these ambiguities. You see, the whole thing of like, you know, getting five customers to sign the LOI is actually a distraction. Because if I have that OKR hanging on my head, I will just day to day make very different decisions than if my goal is to get this insight. Right? Because like, okay, I'm approaching, you know, it's two weeks before the end of the quarter. I have this KR of getting five customers to sign the letter of intent. Do you think I'm in, 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 in insights mode right now? No, I'm in panic mode. I will do whatever it is, whatever it takes to get five people to sign this darn thing. I'll promise them all sorts of things, right? But I'll, all, I'll do all of this under the guise of being user-centric, right? But like, again, the objective function is not success. The objective function is not winning. It's defense, right? Like, it's like, oh, I have this KR and I need to meet it. So what is the solution to this, right? If you are in explorer stage, you need not have that many quantitative OKRs. Qualitative is fine. Shipping a darn thing is fine. Really, it's fine, right? The challenge is most companies treat all products the same way, especially companies that scale what ends up happening is they're treating all products the same way because they, they create a process. You see, they launch some things. Those some, sometimes there's problems with the launches. So executives come up with a solution, which is we need a standard process for every launch. right? But then now what they're doing is they're applying that standard process, which involves all sorts of checks and blah, 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 and checklists and launch calendars and bit flipping and all sorts of other stuff. You know, your listeners who are... Google employees know what I'm talking about uh, when I say launch calendar, bit flip, and all of that. Uh, but now what happens is that for the reason, for the sake of consistency and fairness, they're applying the process that works very well for extract stage products to explore stage products. And so because of that, they're kind of killing the product before they've even given it a chance to live. And they don't even realize it, right? So in this environment, if you are a product manager, you will need to, you will need to break some rules, right? And by the way, this is what being entrepreneurial is all about, right? Because if you are constantly in defense mode, 
If you're constantly in like, ooh, I hope I don't get fired. Ooh, I hope you know, all my executives are happy with me all the time, right? Unfortunately, it is not going to work out, right? Because then you're going to make these mistakes over and over again, right? Um, so you will have to be, you know, a lot of this innovation. You see, innovation is not about a dearth of ideas. Innovation is actually about a lack of courage. Because in, in many organizations, to actually innovate, right, to actually build something really powerful and make it win, what you really need is courage. And not enough people have courage. Right? So I would say, you will need to have courage. Right? Now the next question is, OK, fine, I have courage. I'm entrepreneurial, I have courage. What do I do next? My suggestion to you is just fixate on the user, fixate on the market, understand the competition very well. And then I want you to come up with specific creative ideas and proposals for how you translate that insight into product. You see, most people translate insight and customer conversations directly to product features. But by doing that, your competition is also doing that. So you're basically building something that everybody else is building. They're not differentiating in any way. What I want to see is a step in between, which is, yes, you have insights here. And from these insights, customer insight, market insight, et cetera, you want to create a product proposal. In the middle of these two, I want you to add a high degree of creativity. Now, not all creative options will be the right options. Maybe they are not pragmatic. Maybe they cannot be executed. But I want to see you go through that process. Right. The next thing I'll tell you is, ask yourself honestly if you are indeed that creative. Because I'll tell you, most people are not very creative when it comes to product creativity. Right. Now, we are all creative. I'm saying the degree of creativity required to make consistently winning products is very high, both at a macro level and a micro level both at the level of what features do we want, and also how do we solve this technical problem we are having, which will lead us to make all sorts of compromises on the user experience. At that point, also a lot of creativity is required. That's creative execution. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that while all of us are creative, to really win in a competitive environment, you need an extremely high degree of creativity. You need to be like top 10% in creativity, in product creativity. By definition, everyone is not going to be top 10%. Now, are you willing to recognize that perhaps you're not top 10% in creativity? Most people cannot, because I'm product manager. I'm supposed to look at the job description. I'm supposed to be the one making decisions about what to build. So therefore, I must be creative, right? So a lot of product managers stumble there. And not just product managers, I'm not just talking about IC product managers. All, all levels, all the way up to CPO, people stumble there, right? 
the most successful product managers and product leaders have a high degree of self-awareness on this. And they are outcome focused. So what do they do? They find the right creative person on the team. And that, doesn't have, that person does not have to have the title of a product manager. That person could be a designer. That person could be an engineer. That person could be you know, an engineer with just one year of experience on the team. But each time, they are the one coming up with highly creative and interesting ideas. Now, because they are less experienced, nobody is actually paying attention to them. Right? As a product manager, as a product leader, I would recommend that you pay attention to what they are saying. It's not that hard to find creative people on a team. Say you have a team of 15, 20 people, I guarantee you, and assume that this is a, an organization with above average talent. Right? Let's make those assumptions. You have a team of 10 plus people, and you are in a company which has above average talent, maybe top 20%, top 25% talent. Right? Which, by the way, it applies that those criteria apply to basically all the companies like Google, Meta, Apple, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's quite common in that sense. I can tell you with very high confidence that there is at least one person on the team that is a creative product person, but you're not leveraging their insights, and you're not leveraging that creativity. So I'll ask you to leverage it, partner with them, right? Work with them, do working sessions with them, of like, okay, you know, this is what our comp competition does, this is what I heard from customers, what do you think should happen here, right? So those are the things, if you do, you end up with an entirely different type of product proposal than you know, 9 out of 10 product proposals that you'll see at a seemingly successful company uh, that has a high density of talent. Right? Now that you have something that has a chance of being highly differentiated, now your challenge is messaging and communication. Right? Because I told you earlier that, yeah, you'll need to bend some rules, right? But at the same time, to actually get shit done, you will have to play by the rules too, right? And so the way you play by rules is by mastering the art of influence, okay? And, and this is influence with cross-functional peers. This is influence with other teams that are perhaps getting in the way of your innovation, which happens all the time, again, in larger companies. Um, this is influence with executives. Right? You see, as such, the CEO of your company wants exactly all of this to happen, what I said. Okay? The CEO wants all of this to happen. The problem is, there's a lot of noise in the middle layers where people are concerned about a lot more than just successful customers, successful products, profitable products, right? So now what you'll have to do in order to inf exert influence on your executives and your leadership is you will have to find out like what triggers them, what gets them excited, what their org priorities are. And you will need to shape your proposal in a way that aligns with that, right? And if it is impossible to make it align with that, 
then you will have to do the hard work of convincing them that this, what the thing you are proposing, is actually the correct answer. Right? Now look, a lot of this is hard work, is an extremely high degree of hard work. It is also, it requires really high degree of talent and traits. So it's both like skills and traits that, is, that are necessary to make all of this happen. Right? And have I seen this happen? Absolutely, many times. But it is not the common case. Right? So really, I want you to think about getting back to your original prompt. If you are this product manager or product leader, I want you to think about the various things I said. And then I want you to think about how it makes sense for you to adapt and adopt your approach, adopt a different approach from the one you're using right now. And to wrap it all up, I will say, ultimately, it does go back to courage. Because without that essential element of courage, and also a high degree of resilience, what is going to happen in practice is you'll say, OK, I agree with everything Shreya said. I'm going to try it out. But you're going to encounter roadblock number one next week, roadblock number two the following week. And then you're going to encounter other bad news the week after. And it's going to be easy to give up. Right? So that courage and that resilience is, going to, is, is what's going to take you through. Now, after you do all this, right? I know this sounds like a very frustrating and sad journey that one is about to embark on. But as you do this, what you'll find is your career and its trajectory takes an entirely different shape. Right? Because as you do this and as you build these skills, what ends up happening is all of a sudden, and this is not going to happen overnight, but as you do this over a course of years, without trying much to do it explicitly, you will end up in what I call the top 10% product manager, product leader bracket. And what that does in turn is it opens up all sorts of opportunities for you, both at large companies and startups. Not only that, because it opens up so many opportunities for you, it also sets you up for highly outsized compensation wherever you go. Right? And I think this is still true. Yes, we are going through a downturn right now, but this is still true that there, at many places, people at the same level, you could have a vast disparity in compensation because there are people who are in this top 10% kind of bracket in terms of their skills, in terms of their trade, in terms of their ability to consistently build products that are actually successful, that they are so sought after. right? Uh, and there isn't enough of them, so it's classic, you know, when there isn't enough supply, you know, there's going to be a lot more compensation, a lot more demand for your time, and you're going to be able to choose from among the best options in terms of where you want to work next. Right? So that's the upside. Besides just launching successful products, happy customers, and the satisfaction one gets, there is clear upside to you. But the road is not straightforward. 
There is no one book that you can open up and say, I'm going to read this book, and now I'm going to be in the top 10%. It is a lot of hard work and a lot of commitment towards doing what's right. How do you measure your own creativity? Because if you don't know, is creativity something you haven't seen before? How do you measure your own creativity so you have self-awareness on that? Because if you don't even know whether you're strong or not, you don't, you don't know to look for other people that have it. You might be highly creative, but it'll be hard for you to know that. It's going to be very hard for you to know that. So this is where the onus is actually on your manager. You see, when your manager, see, most managers don't do performance reviews the right way. And they don't do feedback the right way. And most product managers don't ask for feedback the right way. Right? So the default assumption that I have to make if I don't know your manager, who your manager is, is that your manager is incapable of actually giving useful feedback to product managers. Okay. So now again, from a high agency perspective, the onus is on you to extract the right kind of feedback from your manager. So what you want to ask your manager is once they've had enough time working with you, you want to really ask them, what are my superpowers? What do you see as my superpowers? Now again, for most managers, that question is going to catch them off guard. As a manager, it is actually your duty to figure this out proactively. But again, most managers do not do that. So when you ask this question, also tell them that, look, I know this question might come across as perhaps something we haven't discussed. Don't say something you haven't thought about, because then they'll take it personally and they'll get defensive. But it's just something we haven't discussed. So all I wanted to do was plant the seed. I would love to get your perspective on this in our next one-on-one. -on -one. So like, what you're doing is politely actually suggesting to them, I don't want to hear what you have to say right now. Because actually, if they give you a reaction right away, and if they are not a really good manager, like again, a top 10%, top 20%, PM manager, they're going to give you some bullshit. And let's say that happens, right? Let, uh, so I want to be tactical here, right? So let's say they give you some bullshit. Uh, first of all, you'll need to have the judgment to evaluate that it's bullshit. But like, let's assume you do. Uh, you say, okay, that was great. Thank you. Right? Uh, is it okay if we continue this conversation in our next one-on-one? -on -one? Right? Because this is useful input for me. I'm going to think more about it, and I'm perhaps going to come back in our next one-on-one -on -one with some more questions. But I would also request if you also mull this over some more. Right? And if you have other ideas or other observations about my superpowers, I would love to hear that. Right? So as you do that, what ends up happening, hopefully, over the course of a couple of conversations, 
is you start getting some signal, right? And treat it like a dialogue, right? But over time, like as you're kind of having this conversation, it'll become clearer to you. And you know, some manager might not necessarily say, oh, product creativity is your superpower, right? But they might say something like, you know, this whole thing of like, uh, you know, examples based feedback, right? Like again, good intent, but very shoddy execution, right? So your manager will say, okay, you know, my feedback for you in terms of your superpowers is, well, you, at this meeting, you, this problem came up and you dealt with it really well. And then, uh, you know, I heard from your engineering counterpart that, um, you know, when you guys had this technical issue, you worked really well with the designer and the tech lead to come up with a new way of solving this problem, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, whatever the feedback. So they're giving you examples, right? Like, what they don't understand is, like, what is the higher level pattern, which is like, oh, there is probably creative execution, there's product creativity, right? Uh, sometimes you might have to extract the pattern, right, from the examples. Um, but see if it is there, right? And by the way, you don't have to restrict this just to your manager, right? Like you can go to your engineering counterpart, people you work with on a regular basis, and ask them this question. If you don't get any feedback around this specific area of product creativity, that does not mean you're not creative, or that does, that does not mean that you're not highly creative, but it should give you some reason for pause, right? Is it because you haven't had, you know, most people will say in these situations, well, I am creative, but I just haven't had a chance to demonstrate that creativity, right? But I, I want you to understand that creativity doesn't require a chance, because when somebody is creative, it's not like they say, oh, Today, I choose to be creative. They can't help it. They cannot help it, right? Steph Curry doesn't say, today, I choose to shoot the basketball well. That's not how it works. That's not how talent works, okay? Jerry Seinfeld doesn't say, today, I choose to be funny. Or today, I choose to watch the hilarity of human interaction. He can't help it, right? He sees it everywhere, right? So don't give yourself the excuse of like, well, my organization hasn't provided me with the opportunity to be creative, therefore, right? Like be true to yourself because that's the most selfish thing you can do, right? If you want to optimize for yourself, you've got to be true to yourself. So ask people, because if you are highly creative, that almost certainly would have manifested in all sorts of different ways, even in an environment that is generally non-creative, okay? Which gets me to the later point now. So that this was for early career people, okay? Remember I said creativity cannot be measured, but creativity can be evaluated. So how do you evaluate creativity? You evaluate it relatively. Right? There is no metric for creativity, but I'm sure you have seen products that demonstrate, that manifest creativity more than other products. So creativity can be evaluated on a relative basis. 
And that's what your peers are going to do. If you're early career, your peers are going to evaluate your creativity on a relative basis, which is, oh, you know, normally, like in the past, I've seen for this kind of problem, the solution seems to be of this type. But Alice is such a creative PM that she came up with a very different solution, and it was actually a better solution than would anybody would have come up with. And it worked really well, right? So we're always evaluating things relative to something else, relative to our experiences. Well, now let's assume you're in the second category. You have more than five, six years of PM experience. You have enough sample or in your own experience to figure out how creative you are, right? Because presumably you've done many product launches, you've worked with many teams, you've gone through hundreds of sprints at this point, right? And you've worked with dozens of colleagues, both PMs, non-PMs, maybe hundreds of colleagues, right? So now you can start evaluating yourself relatively, right? And just do that evaluation. Do the evaluation of your products relative to other products as well. So that's what happened to me in my own personal experience. Um, um, I happened to kind of be fairly high on creativity, or more than that, actually. I'll take the other example, which is empathy. Customer empathy, user empathy, cognitive empathy. I just happened to somehow have a very high degree of empathy uh, for customers that helped me reach the right answer faster. I did not understand that for like the first five, six years of my career as a PM. And frankly, like nobody really gave me that feedback either. They said, yeah, yeah, you do good product stuff, but nobody like really gave me that feedback, right? But come year five, six, seven, I was now able to figure that out myself. Because remember, by that time, I was also like starting to mentor PMs and manage PMs and so on, right? So I was now able to see, you know, that kind of relative. Because like, you know, early on in our career and in our lives, in our professional lives, we assume everybody is like us, right? Only later we realize, oh, wait, there are some people who don't have any of what I seem to have. And there are other people who have a lot of what I don't have, right? So again, these are all relative comparisons. So as you look at that, that's how you will get. I know you said you wanted to get to it quick, but I think this is a, an important point uh, for two reasons. One is um, we get stuck in this measurement a lot, which is like, how do I measure? Is there some metric for it? But what happens is actually the measurement is an excuse not to take action or not to see the truth. Because there are many people who if they find out or if they realize I cannot precisely measure a certain thing, they will actually ignore it because they, they, they buy into the, uh, you know, what you cannot measure, you cannot improve, et cetera, et cetera. All of it is lies. Uh, we improve things all the time without measuring them in our daily lives. Uh, so, so that is one key reason why I wanted to clarify that evaluation point. And this point about relative evaluation and how it changes with one's career is a very important kind of career lesson for folks. Yeah, that's very helpful. And what you can measure uh, you shouldn't do is very, it's a, great that you called it out as a lie, because I yep. hear that all the time uh, with very OKR-specific leaders that are, yeah. 
Moving on to the next segment on successful PM careers, can you explain your LNL system and how that could be useful to product managers? Yes. Um, so the LNO system is um, uh, a system that uh, I created uh, and evolved uh, actually from Elizabeth uh, Grace Saunders' INO technique, um, which I read about about four four years into my PM career. I was in this situation where I was stressed, overwhelmed. I was not able to just have any kind of uh, rest and relaxation at home after I was working at Google at the time. And uh, I was just not able to relax after coming home uh, after work because I had this endless task, uh, task list. And I was very ambitious by nature. So I was just like, I have so much to do. I can't get most of it done. I'm working really hard. I'm always overwhelmed. And it was affecting my personal life. It was affecting my sleep high degree of stress, and just this constant state of anguish, confusion, while I was doing my work as well. So the quality of my work was also suffering during this time. And so naturally, when we're going through a really tough period in our lives, we look for solutions. Like we are forced to. It's like a kick in the butt, right? Like, go figure this shit out. Right, so I was trying to figure this shit out, and I was lucky. I just came across this blog post um, uh, with the INO technique um, by Elizabeth Grace, Grace Saunders, uh, and the, the core insight uh, in there was that, as perfectionists, which I certainly was a perfectionist, um, you know, we often don't understand how much effort needs to go into a given task. And we allocate the same amount of effort and attention to every task. So that was the core insight um, in there. And then over time, as I understood it, I started adapting it to PM work. And that's what led to what I now call the LNO system. And so for product people and for many other folks who are in high leverage roles, there are basically three types of tasks you could be doing. There are L tasks, leverage tasks. Those tasks give you 10x, 100x of what you put into the task, give you or your company. Right? So an example of this is, say you're charged with writing uh, the strategy for, a, for, how, for the role of AI in your product area. Right? Now, assuming that there is a meaningful role that AI has to play in your product area, this task you've been given is very clearly an L task. Right? It, it could generate you know, 10x returns. It could generate 100x returns. It could generate 100,000x returns uh, versus what you put in. Right? Because if you get that strategy right, the outcome is going to be, hopefully, phenomenally great. So it's clearly an L task. Then there are end tasks, which is neutral tasks. These tasks are essential tasks that you do, where what ends up happening is you get the same amount back. right? And then there are O tasks, which are overhead tasks, which, is, which are tasks and time you spend where you are actually, from an opportunity cost perspective, you are getting a negative return. right? Like so. You put in x and you get 0.1x or 0.5x. 
Okay, so that's the LNO system, leverage neutral overhead. Connecting this with that insight that all your tasks are not created equal, what that tells you is that you have to be very conscious of how much time you spend on an L task versus an N task and an O task. Right? And the system I came up with to cope with all of this is with L tasks, I'm going to take as much time as they need and I'm going to work on L tasks during my most productive time of the day, which for me was the morning, early morning. Right? So instead of doing my email and other things, I'm going to focus on L tasks and I'm going to block off my calendar and I'm going to work on this L task. Right? Uh, with neutral tasks, you want to aim at doing a strictly okay job. Okay? And, but, and, and that's okay because even if you aim at doing a strictly okay job, because you have this kind of drive for quality and in my case perfectionism, your okay is actually also still pretty good. Right? So, so say for instance an end task is you know, maybe a PRD you need to write, but it's not for a core feature that's going to you know, expand your revenue significantly or expand your user base significantly or whatever. We all have tasks as product managers which need to be done because the engineer needs to build out the feature, they're requesting the PRD for it, etc., etc. But it's not the main thing. It's got to be done, but it's not the main thing. So it's an end task. So just aim for a strictly okay job. Because again, you might think it's okay, but actually the engineer will be like, ah, that was pretty good, it was useful. Right? Uh, and then there are old tasks where, like again, because all your tasks are not created equal, you want to actively try to do a bad job. Right? And, a, and a very sort of, you know, the, the example I use the most often is uh, filing expense reports. Right? When you're filing expense, previously I used to write like, you know, this is stupid, but I think I'm not alone in this. Uh, you know, when I file my expense reports, I would like think about what description to write that's clear, right? That, but now that I use the LNO system, I'm like, whatever. As long as it meets the criteria, I'm just going to fill it in, right? Um, and by the way, this is not, it's not only for those mundane tasks. You can have many product tasks that are also O tasks, like sending notes for certain types of meetings, uh, or even filing a certain type of bug report, or whatever the case might be, going to a certain meeting where you are required, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many such tasks that, are, that fall in this kind of O category. Um, and that's where you try to actively do a bad job. Um, and what ends up happening is you end up saving a lot of time from those O tasks and N tasks that you can now apply to L tasks, right? Last thing I'll say here is, you know, a lot of people talk about the Eisenhower matrix, right? Like, you know, urgent, important, and, you know, um, do it, delegate it, et cetera, et cetera, right? The problem with the Eisenhower, I, I'm a huge fan of the Eisenhower matrix, but the problem with the Eisenhower matrix is it doesn't work for high leverage roles such as product management. Because even after you go through the whole Eisenhower matrix process, the tasks that end up in the do category, right, uh, whether do it now or do it later, right, the tasks that end up in those two categories are still overwhelming. You still do not have time in the day, enough time in the day to do it. So the LNO system helps you where the Eisenhower matrix kind of leaves you, right? With the Eisenhower matrix, you'll still have a ton of tasks. 
So take those tasks, apply them through the LNO system, and I would even prefix each task in my to-do list with L, N, and O, so I would remember when I, before I took on the task how much effort I want to put in, what quality I'm aiming for, et cetera, et cetera. When am I going to schedule that task in my calendar, et cetera. So I found it to be a very practical system, and so have many other PMs at this point, uh, to be able to just deal with both the volume of work we need to do, but also I think the more important aspect of the LNO system is if you follow it, it, it gives you a much higher degree of satisfaction with your work. So after I started doing the LNO system, I was driving back home and reaching home much more satisfied because I knew that I had tackled the high, really high leverage tasks. Sure, I had many other tasks on my to-do list, but as long as I had tackled the very high leverage tasks and I had done a decent job with some of my end tasks, I was still quite satisfied at the end of the workday. How can product managers best prepare for the first 90 days on the job? Um, so I'll share two thoughts on this question. Um, the first is that uh, there is somehow a high degree of fascination with this first 90 days thing. And for good reason, because you want to create a good impression and so on. Uh, but I would just say that, you know, ultimately the job you do is like much, hopefully, much longer than 90 days, right? So what I like to think about, the way I like to tackle this question is not so much in terms of tactics and hacks of like, ooh, do this so that you create a good impression, et cetera, et cetera. I like to think about it in terms of generally, you know, what is the role of a product manager and what are some habits that they need to have throughout their time on a given product, right? And not just in the first 90 days. And I want to be able to create suitable conditions for those habits to be established. So that's the lens through which I look at it more so than the whole idea of like, oh, what's going to create a good impression? Now, mind you, I care about the creating a good impression. It does matter. So don't take it as oh, the, the, a good first impression does not matter. It actually matters a lot. But if you take it through this lens, you will actually end up creating a much better impression. Okay, so what does that mean concretely? One of the things that I recommend very concretely that product managers do in the first 90 days, in fact, in the first 30 days, is start using their own product very deeply. Start using your own product very deeply. Right? Uh, and yes, there are cases where using your product is difficult, but again, you can kind of figure out ways to do it, right? Because really, there is no substitute for using your own product. There is no course, there is no book, there is no YouTube video or no Twitter thread that is a substitute for using your own product, right? So. In the first 30 days, as you start using your own product, a few things will start happening. Now I'm going to connect it to the optics part, which is creating a good impression, right? Um, as you start using your own product, your peers will notice, right? They will notice because maybe they saw you asking a question or the, some activity, or maybe you made even uh, uh, you know, a remark 
uh, about like how some part of the product was a little confusing for you, right? People will see that as a really positive sign, right? Um, so that's one. Second thing I recommend doing is the relationship thing, right? In the first 30 days, start establishing steps towards building a relationship, right? So what is commonly recommended is do one-on-ones with your, you know, the key members on your team. And I agree with that recommendation wholeheartedly. But as you do that one-on-one, focus that one-on-one on it being the first step of what will be a highly productive relationship, right? So try to understand the other person. Try to understand their background, right? Try to understand what part of their work excites them. Try to understand, if you're a leader, try to understand what are some frustrating things uh, that they face in their work, right? Like, really ask them a lot of questions about their work, about what excites them, and try to understand the way they view the world. Because ultimately, if you do it with the right intent, people love talking about what excites them, kind of by definition, right? So not only have you, again, created a good positive impression by doing this, instead of just bar- like starting a barrage of like, okay, so tell me, you know, what's the next uh, project on this? And, uh, you know, are you going to work on this other thing? Oh, I saw you know, something in our sprint that uh, is a little late, are you going to take it on, right? Like, a lot of us as product managers, we are kind of these go-getters and we want to get shit done. So we fall into this tendency of like, you know, in that first one-on-one, we are going to start like, and we again, we are doing it perhaps to even create a good impression that like, I get shit done. But all that this person walked away with is like, oh man, like I went into this kind of introductory one-on-one and I walked away with a bunch of tasks to do. Right, like that is not a good first impression, right? So that genuine interest uh, in the other person and in, in what, how they view the world and what excites them about their work, not only creates a better positive impression, but it now arms you with the context of how you're gonna better build that relationship, right? Um, so, so again, the relationship part is important, but this part is like, I, I wanna add that nuance to it. One other thing I'll say is don't just meet with your team members and your stakeholders, right? Uh, One of the things I like to ask uh, people is, especially if it's a new company, you want to ask your manager, uh, who are the five best people you know at the company uh, or in the organization? It doesn't matter if they are, you know, working on your product or not, right? Go and meet them. Why is this important? Well, guess what? Uh, you joined this company. That means presumably you actually want to do well at this company. You want to progress in this company. And so you're better off understanding what great looks like at this company. That is why you are asking this question. Who are the five best people you know? Okay. I found so, this on the web for understanding what really looks like it's coming. Check it out. Uh, very soon we won't need this because we'll have AI. Um, so, uh, so, so find that out and go talk to those people, 
right? Because that will give you a view of like, oh, this, these five best people, they might all be different in their ways, but you'll start seeing some common patterns, right? And so now that is very useful signal that none of your peers have because they are busy, you know, shooting tasks over and running SQL queries to show that they can do three table joins or five table joins, right? Like, again, all of those things are useful, but the point is that you've got to think about it more in terms of the longer game, right? And think about it more in terms of, you know, authentically what will make you more effective at the company. And then you will find uh, these kinds of smaller tasks you can do in the first 30 days or 90 days. So those are a few examples I shared. Um, but again, there's so many other things, right? Like go into a customer meeting, observe a sales meeting, uh, you know, perhaps even start getting ramped up on the interview process if it's a company that has a well-defined interview process. There are many things you can do, but can I have this longer term lens and then work backwards from there? We just had an example of AI over here, but how should product managers approach AI for their careers as well as their products and thinking about getting it possibly onto their roadmaps? Yeah, so I like to think about it in terms of uh, three categories. Uh, the first category is how will AI impact uh, the domain I'm in? How will AI impact the product I work on or the products I work on? And um, in some cases, AI will absolutely disrupt your category entirely. Uh, say you are building some SaaS software for you know, large legal firms that helps with uh, research, right? high stakes research or whatever. I'm just making it up. Or say you're working on you know, customer support software. Right, like those two categories, and again, there are dozens of such categories, but I'm just using these as examples. Those two categories are almost certainly going to get disrupted by AI. So if your product or your domain falls in, in that area, you are going to need to be very vigilant and you're going to need to be a lot more proactive. Right? Uh, and depending on what level in the organization you might be at, it might not be your official responsibility to think about it, right? Maybe it's some VP's responsibility. The CEO asks the VP to think about it. But that still shouldn't stop you from thinking about it and uh, from offering proposals and suggestions. So that's something I would highly, highly recommend that you do if you fall in that category. Now, there are other places where maybe AI is not going to entirely disrupt what you're working on, but it can be a great differentiator. Right, uh, And where that is the case, say you're working on some human collaboration software, right? Uh, you know, maybe that type of human collaboration will still exist in a world with AI. But now the question is like, oh, how can you enhance that human collaboration using what is now possible with AI, which wasn't possible a year ago or two years ago, certainly three years ago. Um, so I definitely want you to be thinking about that as well, right? In fact, another thing I would recommend that you do, uh, and it's a fun exercise to actually do, is how will AI change this? Where this can be anything. So get together with a bunch of PMs or people on your team, engineers, designers, whatever, right? Uh, Friday, 
maybe take half an hour and pick any domain, right? Uh, and it can be something very specific. And just pose the question of like, how will AI impact this domain, right? Um, and the, the possibilities for you are actually endless, right? Like for instance, how will AI impact podcasts? How will AI impact real estate purchases? How will AI impact parenting? How will AI impact coaching? How will AI impact higher education? Right? Like, just like you can go on and on, right? Horticulture, right? Like, there's just, there is no end to this, right? Why, are, why is this fun and useful? Um, well, fun you can decide. If it's not fun, don't do it. But the reason this is useful is because you want to exercise those kind of pathways in your brain to kind of really think about these things, right? Because this is where, again, you know, even if you're not working on, uh, you know, real estate software, it's actually worthwhile to think about that. Because you see, again, going back to the creativity point, creativity you cannot plan for, right? Creativity is actually a result of like various actions you take or don't take. And then somehow that ends up as, at some point, a creative insight, right? So you can't really plan for creativity, but you can do these types of things that will actually make you a lot more creative in the future, right? So that's just like, as an aside, that's an activity I would suggest that you do. Um, and if you don't find a team or a group to do it with, you can do it on your own. Right, cost nothing, and cost maybe 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of your time. Okay, so, so that's the first category. How will AI impact my domain, my products, etc. Right. The second category is how does AI impact teams? Right, and my prediction is that um, teams are going to get a lot smaller, and what that means is um, that you are not going to have such a high degree of need for collaboration, and particularly a high degree of need for the project management uh, that we often tend to do as PMs, right? So naturally, you have to do a lot more project management if your team is 20 people versus if your team is four or five people, right? Uh, and so, so what that means is that the core parts of the PM job, the highly differentiated parts of the PM job are going to become even more important. Uh, and by the way, this applies to other things as well, right? Like if you want analytical insights, uh, as a PM, uh, with the advances in AI, you'll simply be able to ask questions uh, and you'll be able to get answers instead of spending, you know, half a day doing data analysis, as in, which you do today, right, but you won't need to do necessarily later, right? Um, so, uh, market research, same thing, right? Like, now, you, AI won't do all your market research for you, or hopefully it doesn't do all your market research for you, but it can save you a ton of time. It can save you 80% of time, right, to do it. So, uh, furthermore, on the team topic, one of the other possibilities is that these roles start getting a little more fuzzy, right? In a world where, like, you know, you can declaratively create UI mockups and you can even declaratively create code, right? Uh, what might end up, and there'll still be engineers, there'll still be designers, I think there'll still be PMs, but if we fast forward a lot, we might end up in a scenario 
where these distinct titles don't exist. You know, we might end up in a scenario where in, you know, the, the product team of the future has maybe five or six people and they're perhaps, you know, doing the same amount of output and outcomes as that of a 20% team or a 30% team or even a 50% team. Who knows? I don't know. But the titles of the five people on the team might actually just be the same. Their title might be builder or maker or whatever it is, product builder, right? Because AI is going to let engineers do market research. It's going to let them create at least decent first versions or second versions of you know, UX and UI. Right? So in such a world, it might not be surprising if uh, we're all just builders. Right? And, and what that might mean is we might want to also, for job security reasons and for impact reasons, we might want to build more skills outside of just the core product stuff, right? That, that is involved in kind of building the product. So, so that could be an interesting, and it's merely a forecast on my part, and so I could be wrong. That could be an interesting side effect, uh, the way things are going, that we don't have titles anymore. Uh, and the last thing is, you know, the impact on your career. Um, and this is where, like, the key, key thing I'll emphasize is, besides what I just said, the key thing I'll emphasize is, Focus a lot more on the core parts of the PM job, and the core part of the PM job is to define a product that will be successful. Right? That's the main job. So, so you need to work on the skills and the experience that lets you do a great job there, which is how you're going to define a product that will be successful. And that all of that goes back to customer insight, market insight, creativity, creative execution, influence, all of those skills are going to be equally valid, if not more valid. So think about it in these three categories. And the last thing I'll share is don't, don't succumb to your fear, recognize your fear. I know a lot of people are actually intentionally not keeping track of what's going on with AI or ignoring it because they're afraid. They're afraid uh, uh, that it's going to change things. They're afraid that uh, perhaps that AI will take their job. Uh, they're afraid of learning something new. Uh, so I highly recommend. It's actually quite normal. Like that tendency is quite normal. Some people are very excited about the AI stuff and they're all over it. Uh, but there are many people who are like actively avoiding it. This is not the kind of thing you avoid. I'm fine that you avoided you know, the Web3 stuff and the crypto stuff. And maybe you even avoided the mobile boom or whatever, the mobile wave, right? Like uh, 10, 12 years ago, because you were working on different kind of software. It's fine. But uh, ignoring what's happening with AI is uh, akin to ignoring what was happening in the 90s with uh, the World Wide Web, right? And uh, I don't think it is smart to ignore it. And so, but the, the words I say don't matter. What you first need to do is you need to recognize that the fear exists. You are afraid. It's okay to be afraid. And then only when you accept that will you actually move on to the next step, which is actually learn more, engage more, 
play with these tools and so on. Finally, you left Stripe two years ago. Yes. And we really have been enjoying your writing. But what else has been keeping you occupied and excited? Yeah, so you know, it's been a really fun journey uh, over the past two years. Um, uh, the, there are three activities that uh, keep me engaged and excited. Uh, the first one is advising. So that's where I spend a lot of my time advising startups, uh, founders, and sometimes you know, executives at uh, startups. Um, and I do that you know, both on an informal basis. So there are, at this point, I've informally advised more than 100 startups over the last two years. Uh, there are also some startups with whom I have an ongoing kind of advising relationship uh, over the next six months or a year or two years. Um, so, so that is one aspect of the work I do. And that's like really deep work, uh, really high impact work, obviously, because I'm working with founders on very important choices that they're trying to make or decisions uh, that they're trying to make uh, for their company, whether it's strategy, go to market, execution, whatever the case might be. Uh, that's one on one that's very deep. Um, then, of course, there's the writing, which like many people kind of found out about me or learn about me through my writing. Uh, I don't spend that much time on my writing because a lot of this I've kind of learned over the years. So it's, it's less about writing entirely new things. It's more about just like expressing those things in a way that people understand. Sometimes they're very nuanced. Uh, so that can take time. But uh, I still don't spend a ton of my time on writing. Uh, but I really enjoy that part too. And uh, that is my kind of one to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands kind of reach and impact, right? Uh, so writing allows me, you know, it's kind of the opposite side of my advising. It allows me to have that broad impact. But it might not obviously be as deep as my advising work. And then most recently, uh, about six months ago, I started teaching. And the reason I started teaching is because uh, I was getting a lot of requests for coaching from product managers, product leaders. But I was no longer able to address that because um, the, you know, I just don't have enough time in the day. So that's when I came up with uh, this idea of like, I always wanted to kind of teach because I enjoy it. But, but I came up with the idea of like, you know, teaching that feels like coaching, right? So I might be teaching, say, a, cl uh, you know, a class of dozens of people or even 100 plus people. But the challenge I created for myself is like, can I do my teaching in a way that really feels very intimate, that feels like I'm coaching you? Uh, because that's the only way I would be able to scale my coaching. Um, so that's what I've been doing over the past six months. And I launched the first course uh, in late October. Uh, and this one is focused on uh, managing your career as a PM. And it's targeted to senior PMs and PM leaders. Um, and really, it's a way, it happens over a weekend, and it's a, a way for me to coach an entire cohort on making much better career choices and much better career decisions. So that's what I've been uh, doing, and it's been incredible uh, because, one, I've been enjoying it a lot. Uh, second, uh, it's very clear that, uh, it was very clear to me the reason I started this course uh, is because I felt like people did not know how to really manage their own career, which in some ways, if you think about it, is your most important product, right? And, and I, I often encountered people who were world-class product people. They made excellent product decisions. But when it came to their own career, 
uh, they were either lost or oftentimes I saw them make really poor decisions, uh, whether it's about how to manage up or how to aim for the next promotion or uh, how to think about what company to join next or how to work with executive recruiters or how to set yourself up for success in interviews, how to negotiate compensation. So what I cover in this course is an entire end-to-end -end view of how do you think about your career, your career path, how do you build your competence, all the way through to if you're at a company, what does it take to succeed? And it's been really fun. Um, you know, more than 1,300 people have already enrolled for the course in the past cohorts. Uh, and I usually do cohorts once every six to eight weeks. Uh, so, so that's kept me busy as well, and that's been the newest edition. And that really addresses this gap. Remember, I mentioned one-on-one -on, -one on the advising side and one to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands on the writing side. And this lets me address the one to dozens and one to hundreds and one to thousands kind of range where I can have a fairly deep impact uh, by sort of treating my teaching as though I'm coaching. And then hopefully later in 2023, uh, as well as in 2024, uh, you will see more courses, uh, perhaps uh, something on product strategy, product leadership, uh, product sense, and a few others. Uh, I've been through the course and the op this opening statement, the question that you asked was like something that I didn't, I think a lot of people don't think about. So you asked, um, when you have investors, you, you look at the rigor with how much an investor makes a decision to invest in the company. There's a lot of rigor there. And you ask, is that the same as your career? And most people look at that and they're like, yeah, like people put a, investors put a lot of rigor into thinking about investments. That's the same as your career. And then you explain how investors are making many decisions and some of them can fail and one of two of them have to be success. And you have to apply even more rigor to your career than that, which I thought was quite insightful because it's the most consequential decision you make. Yeah. So I found that, you know, I found it to be very impactful and I, and I think really did enjoy it. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. yeah. The, the last question I have here is uh, many people with layoffs and things that are happening are uh, maybe wanting to go down a similar path uh, and open up a new chapter. What advice do you have for them for now or in the future if they want to do uh, things like this? Uh, you mean like things like uh, advising, coaching, coaching those yeah. types of things? Yeah. Um, I would say two key things that one needs to really think through and be honest with oneself. Uh, the first one is why are you doing it? So whatever, there are many uh, folks who have uh, ambitions after, okay, after my, you know, after I reach a certain point in my PM career, I want to start a company, I want to be a VC, I want to do coaching, I want to do advising, whatever it may be. I want to do teaching, um, I want to be a consultant, um, et cetera, et cetera. Why are you doing it? What is the real reason? And what I want you to think about is, is there love? Are you doing it because you love it? Right? Because if you don't love doing it, there's going to be a problem. And not just like a, 
philosophical problem, although there is a philosophical problem, but a practical problem. Okay, so let me help, uh, perhaps I can help people understand what the practical problem is. You see, when you are a, let's say you are a PM, so you have been a PM for many years, let's say you are an average PM or an above average PM. Well, the observation is an above average PM still makes a pretty decent income in most parts of the world. Right? You, can have, you can lead a very good life by being an above average PM, very comfortable life. Okay. Now, say you are changing careers to being, uh, say, let's take coaching. Right? You want to be a coach. And I will make the observation that if you want to do this as a career, if you want to monetize it, above average is no longer good enough. Because an above average coach makes nearly zero dollars. So that power law gets very unforgiving when you go into careers like you know, teaching or coaching. And in some cases, even VC, even though with VC there is a certain percentage you are guaranteed or whatever. But the point is, these power laws, the power law gets very, very challenging here, right? So, like, basically, if you are a top 10% coach, yeah, you'll make a decent income, right? If you're a top 5% coach, you'll make really good income. If you're a top 1% coach, you probably make more income than a PM leadership role that you could have otherwise taken with a lot more flexibility, right? And a lot more, hopefully, fulfillment. But again, it goes back to love, right? Do you really love it, right? Because if you don't love it, then no matter how much self-discipline you have, you're going to find it very, very hard to become a top 10%, top 5%, top 1% coach. So which then brings me to the second point, which is, are you willing to commit to learning and to growing yourself such that you do become top 1%, top 5%, top 10% in that new chosen next chapter of your career? You see, since I started teaching, sometimes people will ask me, oh, uh, they'll ask me questions like, even for advising, uh, people ask questions like, uh, so how do you monetize this? How do you decide how to price this? How do you decide how to market this? Right? And, and there's nothing wrong with these questions. But the, the only problem is that they're not asking the most important question, which is, Shreyas, how do I become an amazing teacher for PMs, an instructor for PMs? How do I become an amazing coach for PMs? How do I become an amazing advisor for PMs? Right? Because unless you have that awareness that you need to be, again, if you want to monetize this properly, you need to be top 10%, top 5%, top 1%. Yeah, you can learn all the marketing tactics and all the pricing tactics you want, but when you put up your course, how many people are going to sign up? Maybe through great marketing, you convince people to sign up, but how many people are going to sign up for the next time, and the next time after that, and the time after that? It's an endless game. Right? So that's my advice to people is like, 
think about competence. Everything has to go back to competence and first focus on that competence. And then if you're plotting this move a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, in the next one, two or three years, just fixate on that competence. Right? Instead of trying to take classes that tell you techniques and tactics of how to create marketing funnels and demand gen and all of that for your courses, all of that is useless unless you can be a top 10%, top 5%, top 1% instructor. Right? So focus on that before you decide to then start this next chapter of your career. Our audience is going to love this podcast. Really appreciate you coming down and doing this. It's been a year in the making, and we are so thankful for your time. Thank you for coming down today. I'm honored. Thanks for having me. It was a wonderful conversation, uh, and uh, thank you for all the work uh, that you do. Thank you, Tris.